what Chani said earlier about DevOps engineers. I just cry a little bit every time I see someone hiring for that because like I don't know what they expect or what the candidate should expect when applying mm. for that role. Yeah, I just wish that people would stop doing that. And the non-tech one is that I think pizza is overrated. Oh, here we go. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Oh. Nobody saw that coming. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. Linode makes cloud computing simple, affordable, and accessible. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your ideas to the next level. We trust Linode because they keep it fast and they keep it simple. Check them out at linode.com slash changelog. Let's do it. It's go time. Welcome to go time. Your source for diverse discussions from around the go community. Have you heard go times sister podcast practical AI just hit their 100th episode milestone. They are celebrating by giving away some AI hardware from Nvidia, Intel and Google. There's a link in your show notes. If you'd like to enter, you have until the end of August. Okay, let's talk infra. Here we go. Hello and welcome to Go Time. I'm Matt Raya. Today we're talking about infrastructure and we're joined by some very special guests and hosts, Yana B. Dogan. Hello, Yana. Hey, how are you? Welcome back. How's it going? Good. Uh, we're also joined by Johnny Borsico. Hello, Johnny. Hello, Matt. How are you, mate? How's, how's your week going so far? Oh, well, just before coming on this call, I was just handling an incident. Um, so, yeah, um, this is actually a, a good time compared to what I've just been through. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, hopefully they're, they're always good, aren't they? Well, <laughs> yes, yes. Fair enough. <laughs> they are always good. It's always good hanging out with y'all. <laughs> and we have a, a very special guest as well joining us from London, actually. It's Shubeksha Julan. Hello, Shubeksha. Hello. Really nice to be here. Oh, thank you. But it's good to have you. Yeah. So let's talk about infra then, because this is such a kind of big space. And I must admit, this is the first time I really feel out of my depth on this show, because this isn't a world that I'm I'm very familiar with at all. So I'm very excited to uh, learn as much as I can here. So forgive any silly questions. But yeah, let's get started. First of all, what do we mean? What is infra? What, what are we talking about here? I think a huge issue is that we don't have standardized definitions for any of this as an industry. So like everyone sort of has their own. But when I say infrastructure, what I mean by it is like, how do you run your software? Where does your software run and what it takes to actually run it? So not just writing the feature or like shipping the code, how it actually works and becomes useful. That's such an interesting uh, definition. I was just having a conversation with my partner the other day. They are uh, a slightly a smaller company and their infra team is like mainly, you know, people who are actually like, configuring things. They are provisioning resources, they're configuring things, they're giving like, you know, the rest of the organization basically resources and helping them manage. For me, uh, working for a, like a core infrastructure team at a large company, to me, it's like it's building the you know, core infrastructure from like ground up, like building like storage system, building like, you know, databases, building like network infrastructure for each domain. And I think like for each, you know, different size and the area that the, the company is operating, there's always a, you know, different definition. And it was very interesting to hear your own definition too, which I just realized that it doesn't necessarily translate to me or some of the, you know, the other companies that I've been asking the question of like, what does, you know, infrastructure means to them? Yeah. So for those of us who have been around for a while, infra, like we've had to evolve our sort of a default 
sort of an interpretation of what infra means, right? So mm-hmm. it used to be that when you said infra, well, I would think, well, you have some sort of a, a data center somewhere where you've got a, you know, some some space allocated for your rack, and <laughs> you're gonna get some some customized hardware, you know, in from HP or Dell or something <laughs> like that. And you're gonna you go you'll mount those things, right? Your your one or two U's or whatever it is, and you, you're you're actually running wires and doing these all these things, right? Like like. That used to be what infra used to mean to me. And then, you know, we go into the cloud age where infra is like, well, infrastructure as a service. So you no longer are handling your hardware anymore. We're going to do that for you. It's all virtualized, right? So now you're, you're, you're still sort of confi- trying to figure out how do you get all these things sort of networked together and whatnot, right? But now for a developer, for a software engineer, for, for an operations or SRE or somebody that basically that far up the stack, infra is going to mean something completely different to them as well. Yep. So now it's all about configuration, right, of what you've got. You're not worried about the networking as much. You're not worried about the, the storage as much, unless you have some very specialized use cases and needs that where you have to actually have to know the need degree of what's going on under the hood. Like your your all that stuff has been abstracted, you know, from you. So infra means different things to different people, and depending on the time scale you're looking at, right, like it's going to mean different things to different people. Yeah, I think that captures it really, really well. Like. This is the sort of issue I've been running into as well because it's so hard to like talk about these things because you have to first like define it and bring people on the same page and then start a conversation. Otherwise, it just goes in completely different directions because everyone has their own interpretation. Is that because everyone's needs are so different then that things look differently and the way that they have to handle these problems are just totally different? I guess, yeah, that's definitely part of it. And probably another part of it is that we just never came together as an industry to actually like assign meaningful definitions to it. So everyone sort of ran away with whatever they came up with. Mm. Hmm. That's funny that that happens, isn't it? But I guess in a way, a lot of the, a lot of the world has changed, as, as you were saying, Johnny, the world's kind of very different. Um, so in a way, I suppose that does make sense. But yeah, I liked your definition though, because it's about, you know, your code has to run somewhere. And that's the thing about sometimes as developers, uh, you know, as long as our unit tests pass, and I've probably been guilty of this as well in the past. Don't write in anybody that I've worked with in the past. We don't need confirmation. <laughs> <laughs> so I've definitely, like, as long as the unit tests pass, it kind of, that's it. it gets thrown over the wall and it's sort of someone else's problem. But a few times that's come back to bite me, you know, where decisions I've made at dev time have not played well once it gets into the wild where it's really going to be running. So how important is that sort of the mechanical sympathy, if you like, of where your code's really going to run? How important is that to devs or is it okay that they can just as long as it's working for them and the tests pass on their machine, they just push the code and they can go home. I think this is going to be a very divisive topic because yeah. everyone has very strong opinions about <laughs> it. But for me personally, I do think that it is important. Like as developers building just features, you should be aware how your code is running and where your code is running. And like not all of the details of it, because that's not really possible depending on the size of the organization, but like some basic level details of it, definitely, because it just helps you write better code. Yeah, that's it, it does, doesn't it? Yeah. So if you've ever had to sort of uh, rethink your approach as a developer, right? Uh, so if you've ever had to sort of rethink your approach of maybe how you're fetching data from a database in your application and how much of it you're fetching, right? So a typical use case, right? You're, you're, you're tasked with building, you know, like a, a CRUD web app, right? A blog, say, whatever, right? And on your local machine, everything is fast, right? Because you don't have far to travel, right? Yeah. Your database is right there. Even if you're running in a containerized, you know, version of your database, it's like right there. There's no, the latency is like, you know, virtually non-existent you don't have to worry about these things everything's just moving fast right your unit tests your integration tests are, are just as fast almost as your unit tests and and everything's just you know fluid and, and it's like yeah i'm getting my stuff done right it's, it's it's working it's working and then it goes into maybe a staging or QA environment where they throw a heck of a lot more data than you have locally right uh, these days you can't realistically have the same sort of production workloads you know or, or, or a set of data uh, that you can't realistically have that locally, right, to, to test against. Um, or if you do, it's really just a small subset, right, depending yep. on the scale of, of what you're dealing with. Now, you, your code is now, that was like super fast when you're working locally, is now in an environment where it's getting tons more data thrown at it, and things start to degrade. Performance is, you know, is, is, is in, in, in the toilet, right? And all of a sudden, you're like, like, how am I as a developer supposed to build in these 
for these environments if I if I can't replicate them locally, right? And I'm interested in hearing yep. what Yana has to say about this. Yeah, I have um, actually a lot of different opinions on this. Um, sometimes, like you specifically mentioned, it's sometimes like much faster um, in your local environment, but it's actually not always true. Like sometimes it's actually like slower in your environment. I think what is the core is um, the our development environment is so different than our production environments, and even like as a thumb of rule we try to like keep them very similar to each other in terms of like you know the operating system like the tool chain and everything so we have some sort of like similarity in the production environment it's just like such a big complex thing to kind of like you know bring all the data in all the external dependencies like let's try to you know use the like actual like services um it's just almost impossible to you know kind of like build that entire complexity and uh one of the i think interesting things about this breakdown between you know product teams versus infra is infra teams have been like trying kind of like making things more as a service like i was like giving you the example of like you know databases as a, uh, you know if you're working for a company as large as mine uh, they're also responsible for databases as a service so sometimes they're like allowing you to kind of like you know just give you all these like staging environments also sometimes like taking care of like just, you know, bring in, bring in like similar data so you can actually evaluate things before you start to even developing. So it's, it's a completely different approach. Like I think like back in the old days, at least like for all the smaller companies that I've worked for, everything was starting at the development environment. Now we see it as more of like an environment and evaluation of environments. And then if you think that like things are feasible, we're kind of like, you know, collaborating with the development teams. So I think the, the work style and everything has changed. And I think this uh, breakdown between, you know, product teams versus infrastructure is kind of like contributing to that. And it's, I think, a positive change. Maybe we should bust some of this jargon because you know you hear infra i hear systems engineering and i hear devops do we agree at least on what these terms mean no (laughs) (laughs) i mean i mean it's kind of funny i mean let's take for example one of the hot new titles out there right sre right yeah and you'd think that like that would carry some sort of consistency, right, from yep. organization to organization. That is entirely not the case, like yep. at all, right? Oh. An SRE at Google is going to be very different from an SRE at Salesforce, which is going to be very different from an SRE at Microsoft. Yes, there is a through line between these things, and that and that goes for the other titles as well. System engineering, you know, DevOps engineer. I cringe a little bit when I say that, but yeah. like, <laughs> basically, these things are going to mean different things in different organizations, and even in different sort of a and over the lifespan of, of an engineering team, right? That that the definition of that role may also change, mm-hmm. right? So it's 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 not. I don't think I don't think there is one sort of solid definition, right? Of of what you know, software engineer, database engineer, infrastructure engineer, ops, whatever it is. I think it's going to be different everywhere you go. Yeah. I thought SRE was text speak for sorry. That's how I always thought. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure a lot of SREs will agree with you on that. (laughs) But that's interesting, Joe, because I think that sort of makes a lot of sense to me because it it often, the problems that you're dealing with, I mean, that's going to depend on what you're building, isn't it? And probably even some of the design decisions taken at this sort of architectural level of code, that you know, as we've kind of pointed, as you've pointed out, that that sort of will necessarily impact how that then runs in production and vice versa. And that's the thing. I was always interested in uh, what I could do as a developer to make it easier, to make it simpler for things to be then kind of uh, deployed on the other side. I was always very interested in that. And I had a few tellings off in the past, I'll admit it. So we can talk a bit uh, about that too. But yeah, that is interesting. That, do you think it makes sense then that, that will we ever agree on these things or necessarily are they always going to be sort of different and versatile? And My main gripe with like not having some sort of common understanding is that it makes looking for a job in this domain really, really hard because you mm. have absolutely no idea what you're getting yourself into till you actually <laughs> are on the job. And by then it might just be too late. So like as someone who spent the last couple of months looking for a job, like I avoided all jobs with like the title SRE because of this reason. Because like nine times out of 10, they actually turn out to be just like 
sysadmin or like pure ops role with a different title and probably a higher salary and that's not obvious because like we don't have common definitions or like a common understanding of what it actually means to have sre as a culture we have google sre but that doesn't apply to like 99.99% of the companies out there so that just makes that super duper hard and the other thing which is sort of related to that is that because of that it's really hard to break into this field like i used to be a front end engineer uh, and i started doing front end when i first got into tech and then i quickly realized that i don't actually like front end as much i enjoy distributed systems and back end a lot more so like while i was in college i took up a distributed systems course in one of my uh, like later semesters and it was like a whole new world opened to me like before that it was just everyone around me was just doing javascript and web development so i was never aware that you know there's this whole domain of problems and jobs out there which is also an option and not just web development nothing against web development i have lots of respect for front end engineers i cannot do what they do but yeah that's just something i really liked and i wanted to eventually switch to so i i started on my own i started learning about like distributed systems in general like by reading papers blog posts and consuming whatever material was already out there and then very quickly i ran up a wall and i realized that like you can only do so much on like a single machine unless you have lots of money and access to a cloud provider yeah and i that's when i started looking for a job in this domain and that was right after i got out of college i ended up at microsoft i was doing weird things with databases and stored procedures there which was not a lot of fun so i wanted to move on and do other things and i was getting more and more interested in like infra and distributed systems and and related domains so i did as much as i could on my own and when i started looking for a job there were absolutely no job listings for junior engineers anywhere like it was impossible to find anything at all because it's just like everyone is looking for platform engineering experience for like 5 years but nobody wa- wants to actually hire someone invest in them and mentor them to to get them there and that's a huge problem that i need to address and like at one point i i tweeted something along the lines of like how do you get started in this domain because i was actually curious i was like i can't be the only person running into this and they were just like yeah we moved laterally or like i was thrown into this role at my job because someone else left and it was a complete coincidence and i stuck with it and stories like that so like people don't really know that this is actually an option from the get go and we are actively exclude people who are curious and want to learn and have that drive to learn and can level up really quickly because we don't give them opportunity you know you just shed a, a light on this that like i didn't quite know how how to articulate it and, and you've done an excellent job of that it's like beyond sort of being a developer who's sort of building sort of a line of business sort of features and 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 putting together that these straightforward sort of a, a end user facing sort of a you know a, a, um sort of applications perhaps with the back end that sort of services these things where there is a clear path basically to go from from junior to intermediate to advanced yeah. like th- you don't see that a lot for the operational side of things yep. like i've never seen a job um post for junior platform engineer or a junior operations engineer or junior SRE right maybe they're out there but i've never seen one i yep. literally have never seen one so how do you mature in in such a role in such a field if nobody's hiring for somebody who perhaps doesn't have that experience right is looking to get that exp- i mean otherwise where else are they going to get that kind of experience yep. they need the environment right that provides those those, those scenarios and circumstances for them to learn within right it's not like you can spin up your own well i mean i guess you could spin up your own infrastructure in the cloud <laughs> to do that it would cost you a lot to to yeah. learn and, and but i mean this is the kind of job where really an apprenticeship model right yeah. is 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 really needed right like you need a starting point in this in this field and, and yeah like you say people are moving sort of laterally and they've been around a company long enough and perhaps you know they they started as an as a software engineer and maybe you know sort of be exposed they're exposed incrementally to sort of the operational side and they can finally make that jump but if you don't have that right like where do you begin yeah that's exactly right like that's exactly what i ran into as well it's a chicken and egg problem you need experience to get a job but to get a job you need experience so like where do you actually start because there is a very hard limit to like how much you can do and learn on your own when it comes to a job 
of this type, especially if you want to work at scale. Like you simply cannot replicate the kind of things you'll be doing every day at home. So why is that though? And it's such a big missed opportunity. Like I'm seeing a lot of like people without a lot of experience coming into this field and like looking things from a very like new perspective. Yeah. In my experience, they've been really much more effective in terms of like pointing out the, you know, the core friction points than the experienced engineers. I think experienced people have a lot of like, you know, they're accepting the current status and they always assume that like there's all this like layers of layers of things that, you know, you have to satisfy in order to kind of like provide. But as a new uh, inexperienced engineer just coming in like questioning some of these like things more carefully and that's sort of like the perspective that we are missing in infrastructure in general because you know there's no good connectivity and we're just doing a bad job in terms of hiring people into this area yeah i completely agree is it because people think that this is a kind of serious thing you it can't go wrong and therefore you need lots of experience is it just does it fall into that kind of category in people's minds and because I, I agree i've never seen junior in fact whenever i think of sre or devops or the the people that know this usually they've been doing it a long time so it's a very good observation but i wonder why it is and it could be that that we just we feel like you you can't let these things fail you know it's got to stay running so maybe they think they can't trust somebody that's junior to do that i think that's definitely true and that's on a lot of people's minds but like i don't think that has anything to do with being junior it's just like when you start in a new role even if you've been doing something for like 4 years and you start in a new role on your first day you will be scared of screwing things up so i i don't get like how that correlates that with experience because you might be like a back end dev for example but you might not have done infra and mm. you can still screw things up and people do this uh, there's actually a really really good talk on exactly this topic uh, from asericon a couple of years ago by kate taggart sorry if i have mispronounced their name uh, which basically makes the case for hiring junior folks into sre roles and like what experienced folks on the team can learn from them mm We'll put the link to that sorry yes. con talk that you mentioned in our show notes. Yeah, and the other thing uh, that I ran into, and I keep hearing from other people uh, about it as well, is like just the lack of resources in this domain as well. Because like a lot of stuff is very academia heavy. A lot of the research was done maybe like two three decades ago, and it's <laughs> it's catered towards more experienced folks who have. like a lot of experience in the area has a lot of jargon that that's not very accessible so like i also want to see like what we can do to like help break down those barriers and make the field in general more accessible like something i really appreciated was uh this series of blog posts by Vaidehi Joshi called Base DS like she basically published uh, an article about distributed systems like from scratch every week for an entire year. So it's kind of yeah. like a whole distributed systems curriculum and we don't have a lot of stuff like that. For example, the Amazon builders library. Like you cannot mm-hmm. expect someone who has like just a little bit of experience to go and read about like leader election and consensus algorithms there and actually make any sense of it. And that that content has its own audience. I completely agree. Like there are people mm-hmm. who definitely need to consume that and they learn from it. But at the same time, I feel like we need to cater to all levels of audience, not just people who've been doing this for a while and are looking to sort of hone their craft in a certain sense, and without breaking barriers like for people who are coming behind them. Like my philosophy of just being in tech in general is like leave doors wide open behind you as you go through them, and I feel like we don't do a very good job of that in this community, and we need to do better. This is really interesting that I completely agree with this. A couple of years ago I actually tweeted something like distributed systems, you know, are not as intimidating as what people make them sound like. And there are like a lot of like pieces in the larger spectrum that you can learn and like learn some of the basics. Like they, you don't have to like learn about any you know election algorithm to do anything, right? You can just go for the like stuff that, you know, you have an understanding or you can relate to and then kind of like 
go from there and like you know enlarge your knowledge uh, and your background in the field. But it's funny that like lots of people were uh, telling me that I'm actually trivialized and distributed systems by saying that. <laughs> and I think there's like uh, given like how big of a area it is and how complicated some of the problems are. I think like people are always. Uh, trying to be realistic about, you know, misrepresenting the field. But at the same time, it creates this, like, you know, it's all super intimidating uh, because the field is very large and, you know, the work is not very accessible and it's just hard to read. And, like, it's there's not, like, an easy way to begin and there's no easy way to progress. Like, you can't really... It's just, like, a very large spectrum of things that when we were uh, talking about databases, for example, on go time, we also had that struggle, like, you know, it was hard to create a mental model to think about these systems and different trade-offs and like the larger spectrum of things that you have to learn. And it kind of is intimidating to people, but we have to do a better job in terms of like, you know, surfacing out the entry points and, you know, just making them more visible and accessible. I completely agree. Like I, I dealt with exactly that. Like it's such a vast and such an intimidating field to get into. And like there aren't like clearly defined entry points at all. Like you sort of just fumble your way through like 10 different things and then you'll come across something and you'll be like, fine, like this makes sense. I'll stick with it and I'll like go through that and then switch to something else. And it's such a shame because like it's such an interesting field with like so many really interesting problems to solve. And like we're not going to run out of them anytime soon, at least not in our lifetimes, unless I don't know, like the world ends or something. Let's not test yeah, it. Let's yeah. not test it. <laughs> yeah, especially right now. <laughs> yeah. At least then we, all of our infra worries will go away. Yeah, that's yeah. the plus side. Yeah. What's up, Gophers? Do you have an app in production that's slower than you like? Of course you do, I know. But seriously, is the performance of your apps all over the place, sometimes fast, sometimes slow? Do you even know why? Well, with Datadog, you will. You can troubleshoot your app's performance with end-to-end -end tracing, and in one click, correlate those Go traces with related logs and metrics. You can also use Datadog's detailed flame graphs to identify bottlenecks and latency in your apps. Start tracking the performance of your apps today with a free trial at datadog.com slash go time. And here's a bonus. If you sign up for a trial and install the agent, Datadog will send you a free t-shirt. That's a nice bonus. Once again, datadog.com slash go time. So I'm interested in Go's relationship in this yep. world because, you know, I remember from the very first GoForCon, I remember that was the time when I started getting exposed to a lot more talks and ideas and things from this world. And it became, you know, Docker obviously is a kind of big famous Go project. And so I think Docker gave Go a quite a lot of credibility in those early days because we think of this world as very grown up, like the, this might be linked to what we were talking about, why it's difficult for juniors, but I certainly have this idea that, you know, infrastructure, it's very grown up, it's very serious, you know, maybe you can't be as creative as you can in other perception I had, that it's not so creative, it's just very serious, it takes very uh, grown up attitudes and very sort of grown up approach to it. And I remember being exposed to more and more of that because of Go's part that it started to play in this world. Why is Go such a big name in this space? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And my story actually started at GoForCon as well. Like when I graduated, I, I was mostly doing Java and some C++ in college. And I was hearing about Go... Yes. Yeah, I deserve that. Thank you. Uh, so yeah, I was I was hearing about Go and like I was like I was seeing it pop up and I was not sure what it was all about and I looked into it a little bit and I, then I decided to apply for the GoForCon scholarship. I got that and I attended a bunch of talks, went around talking to people in the community. I think that's the first time where I met Yana as well, and it was a really really good time and like. 
people in the community were really really nice the language seemed really accessible so like that's how i started getting into it and like actually actively learning it and like it was already exploding in in the infra distributed systems community because more and more people were using it for like these kind of problems and that's why i sort of like made the relation that if i learn go then i'll be able to get a job in this domain which in hindsight was probably not the best way to go about things but it sort of worked out so i guess it's okay so yeah like that's one of the main reasons i actually got into the entire ecosystem because like go was and is still being used heavily in the cloud native ecosystem which has sort of become synonymous with infrastructure mm-hmm. in a certain sense in the last couple of years and i think that has sort of really lifted it up in the developer community as well I love that and actually we should do a shout out cuz I you know the go community and gofocon in particular you know Brian and Eric and every, all the team there from the very beginning they had a very big focus on making sure it was an inclusive community yep. and making sure that it was trying to open doors for people where the doors might not be open so I think that's great to hear a success story there on that So how was it learning go for you was it did you find it like tricky coming from java and c++ was it too easy <laughs> too easy because it mm. like it has its own gotchas but it was definitely easy like i did not have trouble grasping the basics of the language they were very straightforward it was mostly just the syntax bit which just takes a while to like it's just practice it takes a while to get your head around that but yeah it was fairly straightforward and like one of the favorite things uh like for me about go is that how easy and accessible it is to like people just starting out which also in turn makes like all of the domains that where it's used accessible to people and the fact that it's used like so widely in op- open source infrastructure projects is just a bonus because it's so hard to get started anyway and like especially when it comes like if it's real if it's written in like Lua or like Scala or something like that. It's like those are not languages that people always learn in college. For example, like Go is becoming a, a language that people are actually actively learning in colleges. So it just reduces that barrier as well, and it's easy to pick up uh, on your own too, which is great. So one one thing I'll I'll mention, and I definitely appreciate sort of a uh, your experience um, with sort of a. Uh, with your journey with the with the go language and the go community um there was a time there that i was a little worried because you know i'm not I'm not sure if if y'all can recall but there was a time where where go was seen as sort of a, an elitist sort of a language right it, it mm-hmm. created a, a, it, there was a, this perceived barrier right to that oh you only do go if you are like you know top echelon of people who who are going to be doing these is ops um systems distributed systems like they're creating this aura right this this mythos around around the language itself sort of which kind of created a barrier right for for people who who might otherwise be interested right but but because of that you you could really shut out somebody uh, mm. even before they even try to learn the language itself right just the aura around the community and i'd like to think that we got past that and you know through effort out say right you know you saw a lot of community members who care about the community sort of go out there and make go accessible to to, to beginners you know uh, teaching and writing blog posts and in 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 their videos just talking about sort of uh, the inclusive nature of the community like it was a really a concerted effort right yeah. to really dispel this 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 notion that go is really reserved for a select few and that that's something that that I think first of all no no technology holds <laughs> that, that higher regard right i mean anybody can learn to program you know i actually believe so you need to put in the effort uh, for some it's going to be harder than for others and that's just the way life is right you know yeah. it's but you know creating these sort of artificial barriers for people to learn things like that has no place in this community and and I'm glad your experience was a little different but I do want to acknowledge you know that, that yeah. we did have our some of our own stumbling some stumbling blocks within the community you know where where with that with that phase where where we were kind of, this barrier artificial barriers was sort of being talked about for a little while it was very painful in the beginning to be honest I, you know right now like i'm not sure if anybody can remember but you know lots of the initial criticism maybe go received was also related to that right like it looked like a preserved place for elitist people and uh if you take a look at the you know earlier posts on the mailing list and so on like you know it was very different and it took a long time 
you know, many years and like, you know, efforts and like lots of people felt very burned out actually and left the community and the project altogether. But I'm actually glad that like, you know, we got to the point and we still have, I think, a lot to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember that first GopherCon and it was about, I remember the people actually actively talking about having diversity and things like that. Um, so you're right, it was a proactive thing and, and remains one. It is something that we do have to kind of keep working at. It doesn't happen by default, does it? Yep, definitely. It has to be like a conscious effort. Like I remember like the, the year I went to GoFacon, that was 2017. We actually had like a diversity and inclusion like room on the last day of the conference and like it was mostly people like women who go there were quite a few number of men as well and I remember like Russ Cox handing out mics for like folks to ask questions and I was just like whoa did not expect that but it's great to see mm -hmm. and like something that has personally attracted me to this community has been like go as well as like Kubernetes and adjacent communities is that the number of women who are well respected and like in positions of leadership and influence, I, I have not seen that in any other programming community to that extent so far. Like it's bad, yes, but like Go seems to be slightly better at it than a lot of other communities out there. Great. Yeah. But again, more to do. Yeah. Um, okay. So one of the things that I was told off, I was uh, told off by, by my uh, DevOps guy was just a specific example. I didn't set the timeout on an HTTP client. And so by default, when you use that default client, there's no timeout. So it basically means that your code can hang if there's sort of problems on the network. That was kind of an early sign that I had that, that told me I need to understand the actual environment in which my code's going to run. Are there other things that you wish developers knew, that anyone of us wish that developers knew even if we don't have the scope to to become experts in this world. I have one question for you. Did you like think about all of this before the show or do you like just loop it in your head every night before you go to sleep? What, the, the <laughs> questions? <laughs> yeah, all of the times people have told you off. Yeah, they come back to me just <laughs> as I'm drifting off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I did not expect that. That was good. <laughs> uh, well, but that's how I learn, actually. So you raise an interesting point because I, I think a lot of the learning comes from when things go bad and then you think, oh, yep. I'm not going to do that again, <laughs> especially in this kind of space. Um, yeah, yeah, it sticks with you. Yeah. Yeah, something um, that I've seen people get caught by uh, is variable shadowing. Hmm. Tell so, us more. what is yes, that? there was an interesting incident that was caused by it. Basically, you were looping through a bunch of machines, but because the variable was already assigned, it was only looping through one single machine and not doing everything that it was supposed to do for all of the machines. So, yeah, that's something that's very easy to forget. It gets missed in code review all the time, but it has caused very bad things. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, you see, you don't think that. It just seems like a simple little thing yeah. that you might do. And, and of course, it has a, a knock-on effect. Yeah. This is an example where, where I think the Go language is sort of forcing uh, developers to sort of uh, come in sort of a face-to-face -face with some of the things happening, right, uh, sort of at a lower level within, within the stack. Right. So if you take a sort of a typical framework user, like say maybe like a Rails developer or Django developer or or, you know, like a Laravel or whatever, you know, those popular frameworks where that provides so much abstraction right on top of what's going under the hood. Right. Even your interaction with your databases, that's abstracted from you. All you have to do is use a singleton, call a method and, you know, all of a sudden data comes back and the mapping is already done for it. Like you're removed so far away from the interaction that there is another system somewhere that you have to talk to. Right, that you start to sim simply, like, yeah, this is like doing RPC, all the things. Like, I don't have to worry about you know the networking or you know setting <laughs> timeouts. That that's like framework level concerns, right? So mm. the end goal, right? Unless you choose to go and use one of those frameworks, 
you do have to sort of be aware of, right, and start to actually educate yourself about these things, right? When you get a value, when you initialize an HTTP client, well, yeah, like you, you should read the documentation to see all the different fields that you can set because, you know, if you don't realize that, okay, well, yeah, there's a timeout there, right? Your code could hang in, indefinitely, right? If, if the server on the other end chooses to hang onto your connection, all of a sudden, you know, you're doing yourself a disservice, right, by not knowing, right, what's happening under the hood. Now, I'm not saying you have to sort of, you know, uh, read through every line of the standard library to figure out what's going on and i'm not saying go go you know learn the inner workings of, of of networking you know understand sort of all the different osi levels i'm not saying just get that deep right but actually understand what it is to have one system talk to another system over the network understand what it means to have one system talk to a number right of replicas right um, um with it within a network right understand what it means to say okay spin off multiple coroutines where each one of them could be doing something right when do their lifetimes end right when when, when do they rejoin the main go routine right like understanding these things that are happening behind the scenes that way you're not just sort of you know say oh yeah let's go to stack overflow copy and paste what I see and then not really know what it's doing and why it's doing it, right? So it kind of forces you to sort of educate yourself a little bit. But I think that's a good thing, right? The, the assumption was that developers don't want to learn these things, that they just want frameworks to do all the things for them. Not necessarily, right? Some do want to know what's going on under the hood. It's kind of like my, my days when I was source learning HTML, it's like that we used to have this thing called WYSIWYG, right? What you see is what you get. And then you'd, you'd go to websites, you're like, oh, yeah, cool. What You could use tools, you know, drag and drop things, whatever it is. And then you need to solve something. And you're like, oh, Oh, crap, I, I can't drag and drop my way out of this thing. Like, I actually have to view source. <laughs> I have to actually see what's going on under the hood and figure, oh, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's an errant tag here missing or there's an unclosed, it's something, right? So you have to kind of look at Go as sort of the view source, right, behind all the sort of the, the abstracted network, uh, the interaction between your different systems and your database and your application. You have to look at Go as sort of the, the view source, peeking under the hood as to what's happened there. And that, that's actually going to make you a better developer, right? And that's going to get you... If if you're not already in the operational space, that's going to get you closer to understanding what it takes to actually be somebody in that role to test to deal with systems, that has to deal with networking, that has to deal with sort of a, a latency and all these sort of terms that float about for those new roles that we have floating. Completely agree with that. And it is very interesting that like, uh, especially with a new language, the assumptions are very different because you have some, you know, baggage from other languages. Uh, one example is um, the context package. A lot of people like when they look at it, like they don't necessarily actually like question what it does. They automatically assume that it's also like, you know, propagating things over HTTP or, you know, gRPC. And even though, you know, it's just a package that provides context propagation inside the same process. Uh, so I think we have this, all these like different assumptions because, you know, we know that like other languages or like library space is just like more powerful in like trying to bring all this like convenience into things. And uh, I think one of the difficulties was of Go was uh, people were coming with that baggage and was expecting more from the standard library than it actually was doing. And then they would be surprised all of a sudden that like it was actually not doing that much, but then would go and like learn. And, you know, it's not a big deal once you learn. And, you know, there's always an easy way to get kind of like, you know, get whatever you want to get done. But even like um, learning what is there and what is not there because of the assumptions and the baggage was a difficult thing for Go because it was trying to be as small as possible, trying to be simple as possible compared to the other languages or like library ecosystems. Yeah. And so then lots of teams started to kind of build their own tooling, didn't they, to solve these problems. And there's an interesting, uh, Mihai in, in the Slack channel uh, was talking about this point that orgs tend to have, they end, end up with their own flavor of tools to kind of address similar problems. And that can be difficult for this industry, if you like, to uh, move when you move between companies, even there can be a lot of uh, new things that you have to learn because we don't really have these established frameworks. Yeah, true. It's almost yep. like you're living in a microcosm based on which subset of language and like with it, which additional tools that you inherited. So you have like different assumptions and like different expectations. And, you, you know, it's a completely different culture almost, right? Like each large companies, especially like a very strong culture, they do things in one specific way sometimes. And like you automatically assume everything is very similar outside, but there's like a larger world outside. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, one example is I know a particular company that have a, basically a kind of microservice package in Go. And then and it might even have a lot of code gen, in fact. So, 
And then if you want to add a service, you use the this tool to generate basically the scaffold of that service and you sort of then do the implementation. And presumably all the ins and outs are standardized somewhat and a lot of other common problems are solved like monitoring and uh, traceability and all these sorts of uh, infra problems. Shubeksha, have you ever used something like that? And what do you think of that as an approach? Yeah, that's kind of what I have used at one of my previous jobs. Like we had a package which generated like a skeleton of a service and a lot of things were standardized. And I really liked that approach personally because it was really easy to get onboarded as as a new engineer uh, to the platform and the ecosystem. And like just get started, like having standard conventions for like how you write a service, like how you write a handler, or like how you do RPCs and stuff was was really, really useful. And like just having that skeleton right off the bat to get started with without having to learn like every single thing was really, really useful. Yeah, I think that is a good lesson. But the, the, the danger, of course, as with any abstraction is teams might try and kind of preempt that by by designing that up front. And I suspect, I know the case you're talking about, and I suspect these things have to kind of emerge in some way, don't they? Or could there be a standard, and there are some Go packages that address this, could there be a standard that we all just use? I think what you say about like it evolving, like you basically notice that you're solving the same problem again and again and again, and then you try to get an abstraction out of it. But then, yeah, that abstraction can go wrong there are no guarantees that you will get it right. And depending on how you design it, it can be very, very hard to change, especially if it's like used as widely as something like like a new service being generated. So yeah, there's always that. And I think the other danger is that it sort of sets expectation that you don't need to learn about what's actually going on. It's like a magic wand that you wave and like you get stuff out of it and then you can start building on top of it but you don't really understand what's going on underneath. And yeah, that's, that's again, something that you need to be careful about. Like that, like Johnny said, like there'll always be people who are interested in, in figuring out what's going on underneath, but there'll also be people who just want to build on top of it. So I think getting that trade-off right uh, between like catering to both audiences is very hard, but it's also super important to keep that in mind when designing abstractions. Brilliant. Hi, I'm Matt, and I'd love to tell you about Pace.dev. Pace.dev is a minimalist task management and async by default communication tool. Our screen recording feature is actually very popular. Wherever you can leave a comment, just like how easy it is to upload a file, you can record your window or the entire screen and upload it as a video to the team. Sometimes a screen recording is the perfect way to explain something. You know, whether it's a bug that only happens for you or maybe more optimistically, a new feature that you can't wait to show off. And the showcase feature takes that a step further and lets you highlight progress, which is a much more positive experience than trying to make up estimations out of thin air. So please learn more and start your free trial at pace.dev. Well, it's that time again. It's time for our unpopular opinions. And the music plays. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you, you, you pause there, wait, kind of waiting for it to sort of... Uh... Yeah, that's another thing that I just hear over and over in my sleep. <laughs> that theme tune for unpopular opinion. Wow, yeah, there's a pill for that, mate. Yeah, thank you. I'd like some. <laughs> Do we have any unpopular opinions on this? You must have one, Johnny. Um... <laughs> I mean, you know, we have we have a guest on the show, so I'll allow them to. That sounds polite, <laughs> but it's actually rude. <laughs> <laughs> okay, if we don't have one, then it's just a waste of theme tune, isn't it? I mean, I can probably come up with one. One tech and one non-tech. Brilliant. Like, what Johnny said earlier about DevOps engineers, like, I just cry a little bit every time I see someone hiring for that. Because like I don't know what they expect or what the candidate should expect 
when applying mm. for that role yeah like i just wish that people would stop doing that and the non tech one is that i think pizza is overrated oh here we <laughs> go oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh no oh nobody no. saw that coming <laughs> <laughs> oh man oh, by man. the way that's that isn't a non-tech one we love pizza well, oh yeah yeah i'm just i'm just really sick and tired eating pizzas at like london meetups <laughs> which is like just to see a white dude so yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh man yeah. john's taking us offline after that comment <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness oh my goodness okay so i i do i do have an unpop an, an unpopular opinion and because uh, shubesha gave me sort of the, the courage uh with her, yes. with her first one uh, um I, I i'm gonna lean into this one a little bit you don't like so, lasagna do you <laughs> <laughs> okay go on i've been sort of noticing this trend on the interwebs of uh, uh, sort of uh, people changing the names of their of their main branches or their master branches on their repositories oh, yeah. and things. Mm. Well, I mean, that's all well and good, but rather than renaming your master branch, I'd settle for you rethinking your hiring practices, right? To be like a, a less laced with sort of implicit bias, right? So that's I think that's going to be way more sort of beneficial in the long term than sort of superficial sort of, you know, sort of a gestures of, of like that, right? I mean, it's fine if you if you think it helps, if you think it helps sort of culturally within your organization, that's totally fine. Um, a master branch really never bothered me much because I choose to think beyond that. But uh, again, that's not going to carry as much weight for me, right, within an organization. Um, if, if you do that, but your the rest of your practices and the rest of your culture is is... is uninclusive and uninviting for people who look like me so that's very well said that's a shame because i was hoping we could just change that and then we fix racism yeah actually i saw a, i saw a heartbreaking yeah. report where uh, somebody i think it was oxford university uh, in england they applied for lots of jobs and just used different names the ex it was the cvs were exactly the same they just changed the names and the results were staggering and honestly like i thought we were doing better than this report showed i'll try and find it and put it in the show notes it was genuinely heartbreaking that uh, just by having a, a different name or a name that's uh, difficult to pronounce perhaps uh not for me obviously i nailed it um <laughs> then you know it gives you a disadvantage just a name it, everything in the else 500th try but yeah but yeah. With, with editing though don't forget <laughs> it's gonna be just once it's gonna be the first time <laughs> uh, yeah that's heartbreaking isn't it yeah but that's the way of the world mm. Yana, you need to have unpopular opinions. I'm sure you do. Yeah, Yana, bring the heat. You've been, yes. you've been out. You know, you've been missing <laughs> oh action for a while. Go bring for the heat. it. <laughs> oh, jeez. Tech or non-tech? Both. Ooh, whichever way no. you want to. Okay. First, tech. I, I think I shared my unpopular opinion, like, earlier. When we were, like, talking about, like, how intimidating, you know, distributed systems is. And I do believe that distributed systems are not as intimidating as they look like. Like, the the main reason it looks intimidating is, like, it's still seen as an, you know, it, it's kind of, like, elitist. Like, yeah. you know, there's a bunch of people controlling the entire field. Or, like, it hasn't been able to go out all of that, like, you know, small circle. And... That's why it's just kind of like hard and it's kind of like uh, those people are not like contributing to the state of the you know world by making things accessible or like having more of like a broader, maybe some sort of like a, you know, I mean, this is one of the fields that like I understand the challenge so well because it's like so big. But at the same time, like this is one of the fields that I haven't seen any progress in the last 10 years in order to, you know categorize things or in order to like come up with like ways to think about problems right like that's why it keeps being at the hands of like a small group of people and those small group of people are usually actually like they're good and you know they're good in their job and they have really experience and so on but that's not enough 
So that's my, I think it's a slightly an unpopular opinion in my circles that distributed systems is not that hard, but that's my unpopular opinion. Uh, the other unpopular opinion I have, it's tech, actually. It's not tech. It's not like non-tech. And it's about SRE. One thing that I don't understand about SRE is, to me, it's true that like we don't know what it means to be a junior SRE or like who's hiring junior SREs and whatever. But, you know, I also don't know what it means to be the top SRE in the world. Like, what is their job looks like? I have a really good understanding of what software engineering can evolve into. But, you know, what is a principal SRE does? Like, it's just so, un, you know, I don't have a lot of insights. And I know some people at that level uh, at my company and I work with them and I still don't have a good understanding. And it's partially because this field is still like less known and there's less uh, conversation about the role, uh, but it also at the same time that it might be the case that like people at those levels are not necessarily representing themselves as SREs because there's always some sort of like issue with you know being an SRE versus being a software engineer. At Google, for example, software engineering is considered as a better you know role, even though you know these are completely orthogonal things. Uh, so people who are like at the principal levels probably finding it harder to identify with that role. And that contributes to the problem of us not having any insights about their work, which is really sad. Um, mm. And it's it's probably not a very unpopular opinion, but I believe that like, I mean, at the higher levels, we also don't know what SRE is doing and we don't have a lot of insights. That's a really, really good point. Yeah. Like you're saying, it, I don't think... It hasn't been around long enough. I mean, you take the general sort of software engineering field, right? Like, you know, we've been at this for a little while, right? So you, you can kind of get a sense, right? Even at the junior level, you can kind of you kind of know, okay, who who's you know seems you know skilled and and you know as as you mature yourself and 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 you go through the levels and you get a sense of okay, what is a top right uh, sort of a software engineer sort of a, what skills do they need to have uh, and you start because you're using that as sort of a roadmap for yourself right like if i want to become a top engineer like you know oh, i need to spend more time you know learning about different architectures i need to spend more time learning about different patterns and different things like because you know you think because in your mind you have an idea of okay the, the one of the best engineers right exhibits you know these qualities or they know these things right because we've been around long enough to kind of get that sense, right? Even if the, the role looks different at a different organization, there is this sort of a there is this sort of a ideal representation of what a top software engineer looks like. But SRE hasn't been long, around long enough for us to know what that is, right? Yep. Especially if the experience varies so much from org to org, we don't yet know what that should look like. That's also a barrier against people who are trying to get into this field because you know they don't have a clear mindset of like what they can achieve or they don't actually know what it actually translates into in the like higher roles to be able to feel like confident enough that this is what I want to do in the long term myself right like because all the roles all the type like the tech work is a long investment it's not like you know you can just go in and like make a lot of impact in a very short amount of time you make impact in a very long amount of you know periods um, you invest like five years, 10 years into roles and like, you know, grow up to like, you know, really high levels. And people just want to understand, you know, what the role ends up being after five years or 10 years in order to, you know, invest their very precious time like into that role. Yeah, like this is something I've had a conversation with multiple people about who are SREs as well as like people just who've been in the software industry for a while. And the conclusion that I got was that it's like for me, for example, I've, I just completed three years in the industry. So it's too early for me to pigeonhole myself into an SRE role because there is bias against that title, no matter what your actual job is. Like people have a certain impression of you when you say you're an SRE and they will interpret it according to what their definition is. And it's much harder to shift from being a software engineer to being an SRE than vice versa. And we, we need to work on that as an industry, but that's just something that's there and we need to like make people aware of it and acknowledge that that bias exists. And like more often than not, the hiring pipeline is also very, very different for both of those roles, which, which doesn't help either. I think this has been a very important conversation. I started the show by saying this is an area that I really feel like I didn't have a good grasp on. And you've 
really opened my eyes as to why that might be. So one thing I will say, anybody out there that has a story or experience or something, you could, I could imagine them thinking, no one's interested in this. But we should encourage people, if you've got these stories, you've, if you've got some experience, please share it because that could be a way that we could start to illuminate uh, some of these dark corners that we are operating in. Yeah, very, very good stuff. I am brainstorming on a bunch of projects in this area to help break down some of the barriers. So like if anyone is interested in collaborating, sharing their story, whatever, feel free to hit me up. I'll be more than happy to chat. How should they get in touch with you? DM me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is scribbling on or email me at hi at shibheksha.com. Brilliant. I want to ask about those things. We are definitely pushing it for time, but I want to find out what those things are. But what are they? They're not super concrete right now, but like something I really want to do is like have a beginner's version of, for example, the Amazon's builders library, which is accessible to folks who are new to this field. Like mm. you can pick up an article, you can sort of progress through it and make sense of things and then go on to read those kind of articles. And another thing that I just thought of, like it literally just popped in my head based on like what Matt said uh, a few seconds ago is that it'll be really cool to actually highlight some of these stories and like talk to people about either in a podcast format or an interview format about like how they got into this field, especially folks from underrepresented people, because this is something I've struggled with as well, like Diana's point. Like it's very, very hard to find role models in this area or like people you can talk to and who can guide you, who also look like you. So it'll be really, really cool to like highlight and share stories so that like there is some sort of a resource for folks to just go to, find like-minded people who are interested in the same things when it comes to technology as well. So yeah. That'll be cool to do. Well, that's all the time we have, unfortunately, and I genuinely mean unfortunately this time. Usually I just say it to be nice. <laughs> <laughs> but it's been such a great conversation. Thank you so much, uh, Yana, uh, Johnny, and Shebeksha. Thank you very much, and we'll see you next time. Don't forget, we have that practical AI 100th episode giveaway going on. Also, Changelog++ is now a thing. It's the best way to directly support GoTime and everything we create for you here at Changelog. Support our work, make the ads disappear, and get closer to the metal at changelog.com slash plus plus. The early adopter rate ends at the end of August. This episode was hosted by Matt Ryer with Johnny Borsico and Yana Dogan. It was produced by Jared Santo. That's me. And our music is provided by The Beat Freak, Breakmaster Cylinder. We're brought to you by some awesome people at companies who get it. Thanks again to Fastly, Linode, and Rollbar. That's all for now. Next week's show is all about the context package, so stay tuned for that. Chankelo plus plus. Changelog plus plus. Changelog plus plus. Change log plus plus. Close enough. <laughs> you want you want you want to get this going, Matt? Um, yes, I do. I just want to make sure I don't mispronounce your name. So, are you writing down the the, the pronunciation? Yeah, but when I write it down, I kind of try to write it phonetically, and then mm -hmm. I realize I don't know how to read that. <laughs> I just don't want to be a typical English person. That's what's really going on. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So go on. Well, One yeah. more time. Shepeksha. Mm -hmm. And then your last name. Jalan. Jalan.
Like, can I get this part of the clip so that I can like forward it to other people who mispronounce my name? Like, it was so useful. Yeah, we'll release it as an episode on its own. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, oh gosh. Okay, Shabeksha Jalan. Shabeksha, there's no P. Where is there's the no P coming from? <laughs> Shabeksha. It's a K. Yeah, that's true. Uh, it took them like five years to learn how to pronounce my name, so don't take it personal. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously? Then yeah. I have no shot in this lifetime. I changed my name five times in order to get it right. Oh, I wow. still can't use my full na- name. Yeah, nobody can pronounce <laughs> so we can hear it like the full thing no, yeah. no okay. <laughs> too much information <laughs> even, you, even you can't say it <laughs> <laughs> it's like I, I ain't putting my government name out in the open are you kidding yeah, fair enough what's your uh, what's your mother's maiden name I'm just trying to slowly get enough information to steal your honor's identity <laughs> oh man <laughs> my name okay. is a globally unique name anyways Okay. Mm. Let's Mine is actually. Mm. Mine yeah, is, I, think. I guess. Wait, yours is a UUID two, Matt? <laughs> yeah, it's G two three five one one nine dash. No, but really, there isn't another, as far as I know, with my spelling. But doesn't help me now. Don't. I need to keep this in my RAM. So can we not? <laughs> can we talk about too many things, please. <sighs> okay, Shubeksha Jalan. Yes. That was that is the good closest enough. you've got. That was yeah. nice. What I'll do is, after the show, I'll just record it, me saying it 50 times. <laughs> we'll send it to you and we'll edit in the right one. That works okay. for me. <laughs> okay, I'll do a little intro then and then we'll get started. <sighs> okay. <laughs> 